Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 9. In this session, we're going to look at how to bring glory to God and to point people to Jesus in our marriages by following Jesus' example of sacrificial love. And so Hebrews chapter 9, verses 23 through 26 is where we're going to start from. Hebrews 9, verse 23 says this, Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And that's where we're going to be going today. Another way that we allow God to be glorified and our marriages and our lives to point to Jesus is through loving our spouses and loving each other in a sacrificial way. If you go to Romans chapter 5, go to Romans chapter 5, you'll see in verses 6 through 8 that Jesus didn't die for the lovely. Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8, the scripture says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to even die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Folks, what I want you to understand is this, is that when Jesus sacrificially gave of himself on our behalf, he did it. Well, when he was on the cross, were people saying, please forgive us? No. Yet he was still crying out, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And so as we move into this last session and talk about how to love each other in a way that considers the other person more important than ourselves, we need to keep in mind, once again, we're not asking you to do something. God's not asking you to do something that he hasn't done himself. Jesus himself laid down his life, sacrificed on our behalf. Go to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4, look at verses 7 through 12, and then we're going to jump down to verses 20 and 21. 1 John chapter 4, starting in verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who doesn't love doesn't know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, if he so loved us, we ought also to love one another. Now jump down to verse 20 and 21. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Jump over to one more passage real quick. Go to John, the Gospel of John chapter 13. We're going to look at verses 1 through 5 and then jump over to verses 12 through 17. In John chapter 13, starting in verse 1, it says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that the hour had come to depart out of this world 
to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Some of your translations might even say he showed them the full extent of his love. During supper, when the devil had already put it in the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, he rose from supper, he laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist, and then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Now, jump down to verse, 20, uh, verse 12. And when he had washed their feet... And put on his outer garments and resumed his place. He said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord and you are right for so I am. If I then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should also do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you. If you do them now in this situation here, we see Jesus take the role of a servant and wash the disciples feet. Now, let me just real quickly explain to you that he was doing much more than teaching just about service, because if it was just about service, when Jesus said to Peter, hey, I'm going to go wash you next. And Peter says, I'm not going to let you. And Jesus said, if you don't let me wash, you have no part in me. He also said this. He said, you don't know what I'm doing right now. Later, you'll understand. Well, if it was service is all he was talking about, Peter knew exactly what he was doing. But actually, there's a deeper level of what's going on here where Jesus is actually teaching about sanctification. If you were to go on in this section that I skipped, you'll notice that Jesus talks about how a person that's been washed doesn't need to have another bath. They're already clean, but you need to have your feet washed. And actually, Jesus was not only showing them how to serve, he was also forgiving ahead of time things that Peter was going to do in the next few hours. We get to understand something. When we confess our sins, we're not telling God something he doesn't know. We're agreeing with God. To confess is to agree. Homologeo is the Greek word. It means to say the same thing, to be in agreement. And so when we confess our sins to in order to be saved, God's the one who's spoken first and said, you need a savior, you're a sinner, you're guilty, you're broken. But when we agree with God, that's how we get saved. We confess. At the same time, on a daily basis, God offers us this grace, the sanctification process. And as Jesus was teaching about the sanctification process, he also at the same time was teaching them how to give up of his place and take the role of a servant to meet the needs of the people around him and, and offer this grace and this forgiveness. By the way, let me ask you a question. Uh, just because you've been through a marriage retreat, it means your spouse is not going to do anything to bother you the rest of, the, of your life, right? Yeah. No, you, there, you, you, it wouldn't hurt during your session later on as we talk to each other to tell the other person, I'm going to hurt you and I'm sorry, um, but I don't do it on purpose, <laughs> you know, and understand that ahead of time and give grace. Be ready to be willing to give grace ahead of time for what's going to happen down the road. But look closely at this passage. What drove Jesus and empowered him to take the role of the servant? The answer, by the way, is in verse three. How come Jesus was able to take the role of a servant, leave his place, dress himself in a towel, and serve the people around him? Why? He knew he was God's. He knew he was God's. 
He knew he was God. He knew he'd come from God. He knew he was going back to God. He knew who he was. He knew who God was. He knew his position. He knew his relationship. And as we looked at last session, he was serving the Father. And because of that, you can sacrificially give to your spouse if you really understand, I'm good. My Father loves me. I'm loved by my Father. And that's how I demonstrate it. Remember how we just saw? This is love. Not that we love God, but he's loved us first. And if we really get to that point where we really believe God is good and he's going to keep track of all things, we don't have to have our spouse meet our needs. Oh, God will take care of all that stuff at the same time. It's awesome when he's allowed to use the spouse in those areas of meeting our needs. But at the same time, what will make you be willing to serve and to sacrificially love your spouse is a deeper understanding of I'm good. I know who I am. I'm God's. I love how you put that, Glenn. I'm God's and he's got me. And then there you can sacrificially love and sacrificially give. We're to be living examples of God's love in this world. We as Christians are to love one another so that the world will know that we're God's children. You're in chapter 13. Look at verses 34 and 35. He says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love one for another. But I'm going to take it a little deeper. The Bible says that our love that we have for the brothers is phony if it, we don't first live it out in our homes. I, I want you to see that. Go with me to 1 Timothy chapter 5. If you were to go to 1 Timothy chapter 3, I want you to go to chapter 5, but if you were to go to 1 Timothy 3, you would see that in the qualifications for those men who are going to serve as elders and leaders in the church and spiritual leaders, it says, after having done it in the home, let him serve in the church. In the same way, 1 Timothy chapter 5, look at verses 3 through 8, as Paul's giving instructions about the widows and who's to take care of the widows and all that. It says, honor widows, 1 Timothy 5 verse 3, honor widows who are truly widows, but if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for the members of his household, he's denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. All through scripture, folks, the Bible says that the love that we're to demonstrate is considered phony unless it starts in our houses first. The Bible even talks about how we're to love everyone, especially the household of faith and, and the church. But even deeper than that, God's word says, if you're not demonstrating this in your marriage and in your family, all the other stuff is phony. It's all a show. It's all a facade. Years ago, I've been in ministry now for many, many years. Years ago, though, God really got a hold of me and he said, Jim, when you stand before me, I'm not going to ask you about the churches you pastored first. I'm going to ask you about your family because those are the ones I put in your house. All the way through scripture, the Bible's very clear that if what you say is real and the world's going to see it, they're going to see it in your home first and in your family. I'm going to share a story with you at the end of our, our time today that kind of illustrates that. The Bible also says that the true measure of genuineness of our love is that it is sacrificial and that it considers others first more important than ourselves before we consider ourselves. Go to Philippians chapter 2. 
We've just looked at this passage earlier today in the fact that we should have this mind in us that is ours in Christ Jesus. But look at Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. He said, So then, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from His love, any participation in the Spirit, and any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves." Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And then it goes on and says, have this mind in you, which is Christ's. Now, I'm going to read this to you again, though, starting in verse 3. All right. Actually, I want to start in verse 2. What if the instructions just simply said, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Don't look to your own interests, but also the interests of others. Would that give us the full explanation of it? No. What's missing? Christ. If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from his love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, then you're able to do it. Like Glenn brought out, when we understand that we're God's and we belong to God and we're in Christ and he's got us and he's promised all these awesome things that he's going to take care of. When we understand our position, we're able to live the life that he's asked us to live, even if we don't see the results from it. See, most of us have been taught well, I tried it. It didn't work. Must not have been God's will. No, that's a dangerous thing to do. If you actually let the results measure whether or not you're going to be obedient, you're, a lot of you are going to quit. Actually, Jesus preached for years to most of the people that rejected him. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. We love to have the preacher talk to us about Isaiah chapter 6, where Isaiah goes into the throne room of God. He's given this vision, and, and, and he has the coals from the altar touch his lips. And God says, whom will I send? Who will go for me? And Isaiah says, here am I, send me. But have you ever heard the preacher preach on the very next verse? The very next verse, after Isaiah says, here am I, send me, God says in verse 9, oh, by the way, you're going to be ever preaching, and no one's going to listen. You're going to be ever speaking and no one's going to hear. I love Isaiah's response. He says in the next verse, how long, O Lord? You know, <laughs> that doesn't sound like a whole lot of fun. And he said, pretty much until Israel's destroyed. But aren't you glad that Isaiah was faithful? Because there's so much wealth that we have reaped the benefits of Isaiah's faithfulness. Folks, you might not see the results in your specific marriage, but you don't know who's watching, who's your kids, your grandkids, you know, you might have people watching that are outside. You don't know what God's doing. Don't you set the determination of what the results are going to be. You do what the Father asked you to do. And you love in a sacrificial way. And you consider others more important than yourselves. Go to Ephesians chapter 5. Back to our passage that we've been looking at off and on. I'm going to read verses 25 through 33 again, especially as he's talking to husbands. In Ephesians 5, verse 25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and did what? Gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. 
In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we're members of his body. In other words, here he says, you're to give yourself up for her. You love your own body, but you need to love her in the same way. Now, I'm going to do something right now that actually wasn't originally in my notes. But between the first session and this session, I added a page. My other notes are yellow. I, had, I stole one of your, yellow, your white pages when you weren't looking, Allison. You weren't there. And I figured if I asked you, you'd say no, so I didn't ask. <laughs> but as my wife and I, Becky, were having our little time together after the first session, we went out to the car, and she said, Jim, you do what God tells you to do, but I feel like there's something God put on my heart that you need to say. And she did it in such a way that I understood this was coming from God. And I want you to hear that I'm putting into practice what we talked about last session. But she said, Jim, you need to talk to the men and the women about the sexual aspect of their relationship. Because when you talk about submission, there's going to be an area that needs to be dealt with. And a lot of wives need to hear some things and some husbands need to hear some things. And my wife shared with me some things that God began to put on her heart. And she said, would you be willing to pray about adding that? And I said, actually, it goes perfectly with where we're going. I want to talk to you all about your bodies. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. This is something that's not talked about enough, I don't think, in the church. But this is a perfect setting for it. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, we're going to look at verses 1 through 5. Paul's been dealing with things that have been written to him about. And here, he deals with one here, he deals with another one in chapter 12. But here in 1 Corinthians 7, he says, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another sexually, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Folks, as I've traveled the country and I've been pastor for many, many years, it would blow your mind to know how many couples today in the church struggle with the sexual aspect of their relationship. And how many wives have used it as a weapon against their husband. How often have we heard the joke of, you're sleeping on the couch tonight? Even though the Bible says, don't let the sun go down on your wrath and give Satan a foothold. At the same time, how many husbands have not been gentle with their wives and understanding in some of these areas? Some of you that struggle in these areas might have had abuse in your past. What makes it really, really hard for you to be open in that area? You need to hear some things. The Bible says, wives, your body's not yours. And you need to be willing to sacrificially give of your body to your husband. Husbands, you don't force that. 
You be gentle with your wives in an understanding way. But didn't 1 Peter chapter 3 said, wives, don't be afraid of anything that's frightening. Husbands, be gentle with your wives so your prayers aren't hindered. But unfortunately, a lot of wives don't fully understand how important this aspect of the relationship is, especially to the man. It's like eating. It's like breathing. Years ago, when my wife and I were first married, we were an associate pastor of a church in New Orleans. And this young couple uh, was about to get married. And the, the wife had been single her whole life and she had been single for a long time. And she would talk in confidence to my wife and some other wives. And she would say to, to them, I keep hearing about the man's sexual desire and how it's amazing. She said, I don't think my husband's going to be able to keep up with me. I have desires. And my wife and other wives would laugh at her and say, hey, don't worry, you're going to be surprised. And she'd say, oh, no, no, he, he better watch out. Well, it wasn't a month or two after they got married, she came back and go, he's an animal. <laughs> yes, ma'am. Yes, and that's where I'm heading next. There are actually situations where as men get older, their desire starts to wane a little bit. And the Bible actually talks about that in the book of Ecclesiastes when desire is no longer stirred. And there are sometimes there are wives who are feeling deprived. Again, don't hear this as one side or the other side. What I want you to hear is this. When it comes to sacrificially loving your spouse, some of you might be needing to hear the Lord say, even though this isn't something you desire, consider your spouse. Husbands, does your wife need more sexual intimacy than you're giving her? Wives, does your husband need more sexual intimacy than you're giving him? God will give you the grace. Some of you might need to go see some counseling and get some help if there's been some abuse that makes it really, really hard for you. I'm not poo-pooing that, but at the same time, we have to let the scripture speak. And isn't it interesting that God would speak so clearly about this? You don't have control over your body. It belongs to your husband. You don't have control over your body. It belongs to your wife. And do not deprive each other, except if you're both in agreement for a period of time. And when that period of time's over, what does the scripture say? Get back at it. <laughs> it does. Years ago, when my wife and I used to do young married conferences, you know, or, or we would do sexual and, and, and sexuality and, and dating stuff. It doesn't say get back at it. What translation are you using? But, uh, but uh, my wife and I used to do dating and sexuality seminars with youth sometimes. And uh, we would talk to them about the importance of sexual purity and being virgins. And by the way, folks, we had the privilege of teaching our children and saying, by the way, your mom and your dad were virgins when we got married. God's way is best. And it's war what, a, what a privilege we've had. I was 25. She was 21 when we got married. And we both were, had been sexually pure. And we've lived, and lived the benefits of that. And we were able to teach our kids. But as we taught the kids from the scriptures about sexual purity, we then showed them how the scripture even said that after the guy was to get married, he wasn't to go to war for the next year, but to what? King James actually said, make sport with his wife is how it actually worded it. And the Bible actually says, don't do it until you're married, but once you get married, make up for lost time. And the Bible actually says that this should be an active part of your relationship. So I don't want to just talk about sacrificially loving and loving each other without talking about this area. And I thank God for my wife, who actually was the one who said it needs to be said. And it isn't just coming from Jim, a guy. She made me say it. <laughs> <laughs> and 
and I'm going to hold her to it when we get home tonight. I've already been practicing my cough. It sounds like this. Hoopatasso. All right, so, all right, so. Wives, don't fear anything that's frightening, though. God will give you the grace, and it will actually develop. I can honestly tell you, without getting into things that are inappropriate, in this aspect of Becky's and my marriage over 30 years, it's better now than it's ever been. It gets better. The intimacy, the communication, it gets better. But you have to stop working on what you're in the mood for and let the Spirit of God work in those areas. Now, we're going to talk in a little bit, and you have paperwork on your desk in, there on your table, but don't pull it out just yet. We're going to talk about the five love languages a little bit, and you're going to be doing some homework in our last session as you break out here. Um, but this is where Gary Chapman's five love languages really was helpful for Becky and I. And I want to just kind of talk to you a little bit about why we need to learn how to speak the other person's love language. First off, let me just start out with you this way and just kind of take you back in your memories to your childhood Boys and girls are different, correct? If you watch little kids in the playground, the boys play with the boys and the girls play with the girls. And the girls want to play dolls and they want to play make uh, uh, dress up and make believe. Guys want to compete. Guys want to guys want to uh, guys want to just uh, you know who runs the fastest, who throws the hardest. And when the boys and the girls ever got together, the boys messed everything up because they just didn't do it right. Yet. As we get older, something starts happening to us in our bodies. Well, all of a sudden, the girls don't have cooties anymore. <laughs> and you'll see junior high kids in a McDonald's, and you can obviously see that something's starting to happen. And now we're curious about the opposite sex. But the boy doesn't know how to communicate with her because I don't understand those girls, but I'm interested in getting to know them and what do the boys do? They'll think, well, if I comb my hair just right or if I walk in a certain way, you know, if I impress her, she'll like me. That's what they always did do with their buddies, you know, impress them. Or maybe if I'm funny and he'll like stick straws up his nose and, you know, hey, maybe I'm on a walrus and the girl's thinking I still like him, but he's really weird, you know. <laughs> and what happens as you get older, you go on a date. Now you're in a car and you still don't know how to talk. <laughs> The guy says, I know how to drive. I can drive my car. Maybe if I impress her with how I drive or she's sitting there going, I want to talk to him. I want to know what his favorite color is. I want to know these things. And he's thinking, I don't know what in the world she's talking about. I don't have a favorite color. Color's color. I don't care. <laughs> and eventually they end up getting physical. And it feels like love. But it really isn't. And they've never learned to develop to really understanding how the other person speaks. Let me ask you a question. Just imagine that you are in a crowded train station somewhere in Europe. And you see this person of the opposite sex there in that crowded train station. And by the way, imagine you're single at this time. And you see this opposite person of the opposite sex and you immediately think to yourself, that's the one. But you speak French, and only French. And the other person only speaks Spanish. How are you going to communicate your love? You can use physical gestures, but again, that's only going to get you so far. If you truly, truly, truly love that person, if you speak French and they speak Spanish, you're going to learn their language. 
The problem is most of us have never been taught how to do that. And so we have communicated in our marriages to our spouses like an American communicates in a foreign country. You ever noticed how Americans are in a foreign country? We think that if we say our language louder, they'll get it. We'll say, hey, where's the bathroom? And they'll say, okay, where's the bathroom? <laughs> it wasn't they didn't hear you. They didn't understand you. But I, in the five love languages, I, my top two are what most guys are. About 80% of guys are at words of affirmation and physical touch. Well, me, when I'm in the mood for a little hanky-panky, I may see my wife in the kitchen doing some dishes, and I'll rub up there, and I'll just speak my language loud, where I'll say, hey, you look pretty nice. I'll hug on her, maybe pinch her bottom, and she'll say something to me like it's not doing me anything. <laughs> well, maybe I didn't do it right. Let me hug her a little bit more. <laughs> I had to learn what her languages were. Come to find out, my wife's love language, how he, she hears love communicated, is through acts of service and quality time. I would have done more if I had actually joined her in the washing of the dishes than speaking my love language louder. And you have to learn how to do that. But again, how many of you, show of hands, ever took a foreign language? Okay, put your hands down. How many of you can still speak that foreign language? The hands did not stay up as much as they were. Uh, you have to keep using it or it goes away, correct? In the same way, some of you might be rolling your eyes saying, oh, Gary Chapman's five love languages, been there, done that. Nope. Because I'm going to take it even deeper today, and that's what we're going to have you do in just a little bit. I want you to also learn how to communicate each other's, not just their language, but their dialect. As you know, within a language, there's different dialects. Mine might be words of affirmation, but... Every word of affirmation doesn't do it for me. What is the specific dialect? What am I looking for? Your love language might be quality time. And I've heard couples say, well, I spent time with you the other night. We both sat in the same room reading separate books. That's not what I was talking about. Well, I thought that was, no, again, you're going to need to teach each other. And that's where you're going to see this in the material that you have. Begin to teach each other and listen to me, listen to me, listen to me. Be patient. They're learning a foreign language. <laughs> You're from outer space compared to them. It just, acknowledge, it just is that way. But it's wonderful because God's designed it that way. Because when the two of you learn how to keep who you are yet come together, you don't make one become like the other. When the two of you come together and you keep who you are, God's awesome design really comes to light. Our kids will tell you, and they've said it jokingly over the years. If one of our parents would have died, we would have missed out on so much more of life. Dad, if you had died, we would have continued on and mom would have taken care of us real well, but we would have missed out on a lot of laughter. Mom, if you had died, dad would have handled taking care of us with ease. Mickey D's, Chili's, Sonny's, Wendy's. Uh, we, our kids would have missed out on so much if it was just me, but together. But we had to learn how we work together, and we've had to, and we're developing it still, communicate and learn each other's languages. And so today, I want you to understand, if you truly love the other person, you will not force them to learn or to speak your language, but you will sacrifice to learn theirs. 
Again, like I said, if you don't keep practicing it, it'll go away. It's just not natural. It's not normal. You have to stay with it. I heard about this older couple that was sitting in, in their uh, pickup truck and had a couch seat and the wife was sitting here and the husband was sitting here and they'd been married for about 50 years and they looked in front of them at the red light and there was a young couple in a pickup truck in front of them, but the girl was sitting right next to him. And the wife lamented. She said, I remember when we used to sit like that. And he said, I didn't move. Actually, when Becky and I first were married, we had an Azuzu pickup truck. It's the only vehicle we had. It was Azuzu Zuzu pickup truck, and it was stick shift. And we wanted to sit next to each other so bad that actually I would drive with one hand, the other arm around her. I would work the clutch. She shifted the gears. <laughs> Seriously, we got good at it. I'd be saying, about to hit second gear. Okay, go. I'd hit the clutch, and she'd put it in second. And didn't she? We, we, we're a pretty cool team. I actually kind of miss that old truck couch seat that we used to have. Again, over time, you just naturally start going back to what we like. Just don't drift apart, just drift together. Uh, they don't drift together, no. So what we're going to do is we're going to have you, you have in front of you uh, a love language's personal profile where you might not fully understand your love language or maybe it's changed a little bit over the years as you've gotten older you see in the five love languages the love language is personal profile for couples you're gonna we're in the time you're gonna take it separately and you're gonna just kind of answer the quiz all right and then once you get to your answers you're gonna have that to discuss and to talk to each other but like I said I'm taking it deeper I don't want you to say my love languages are X and X I want you to then talk deeper about dialect just because it's quality time or acts of service. If I were to say to my wife, hey, I just re-straightened the sock drawer for you. She'll say, that's a wonderful act of service, but it didn't do me anything. I didn't care about the sock drawer. Where, what specifically, teach your spouse what means something to you, how you hear love communicated. Go ahead. Yeah, that's, yes. Yes, she, she was saying, even if you've done it and you know what your love languages are, do it again. Like I say, they do sometimes change over the years as you're getting older. They just, they, they do. You also have with you the five apology languages quiz. And you can see the instructions about that. I want you to look at that as well, because there are going to be times that you hurt the other person unintentionally. And learning how to forgive and also ask for forgiveness is very important. But again, you need to learn how to do it in a way that the person hears an actual asking of forgiveness. But before you go off and do your work, this one's going to give you, it's going to take a lot more time than we've had in the previous breakout sessions. I want you to go with me to 1 Corinthians 13. In 1 Corinthians 13, look at verses 4 through 8 and listen closely to what the scripture says here. In 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4, love is patient, love is kind, love does not envy or boast, love is not arrogant or rude, love does not insist on its own way, it's not irritable or resentful, love doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Love never 
ends or never fails. Let me ask you a question. Are you ready to love your spouse so sacrificially that even if your spouse does nothing in return, you're ready to do it? Because that's the true attitude of Christ Jesus. Did he die for only the people who are going to be saved or did he die for the whole world? Died for the whole world. The Bible's real clear on that. 1 John 2, 2, he died not only for our sins, but also the sins of the entire world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Jesus died for a world that he knew was going to reject him, yet he still cried out, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. If you are going to demonstrate the sacrificial love of Christ starting in your home, I'm going to challenge you to allow God to give you the grace to be sacrificially loving toward your spouse, even if your spouse doesn't play the game in return. Because God will honor your faithfulness and he'll reward you. The world needs to see Jesus. We need to let, let the world see Jesus through our marriage. About three years ago, my wife and I were on a trip, my traveling preaching ministry. And at this time, I was preaching at a church in Gainesville, Florida. And uh, there was a young girl who was a student at the University of Florida who was a friend of ours' daughter. And uh, I contacted her and I said, hey, you know, Miss Becky and I are in town. I'm preaching at this one church Monday. If you would come to the service on Monday night, I'll take you out to dinner wherever you want to go. And Rebecca said, that'd be really cool. She said, but um, Olivia is going to be in town visiting. And can she come too? Now, Olivia is a young girl who grew up in the neighborhood with our kids and this girl, Rebecca, that I knew. And, and Olivia had been in our home a lot because, unfortunately, Olivia's family wasn't a godly family. And her parents were going through a horrible divorce as she was growing up. And it stretched on for a while. And just to avoid home, Olivia would come after school with our kids to our house and just hang out at our house or go hang out at Rebecca's family's house. And, and Olivia now, in her 20, mid-20s, was done college and she was just traveling around couch surfing and she just happened to be at Rebecca's that weekend and she said is it okay if I bring Olivia I said man I haven't seen Olivia in for years it's been like almost 10 years since I've seen her yeah we'd love to see you both so in my mind as we after the service the girls come to church we go to the Gators dockside to get some wings that night I was thinking I can't wait to find out where Olivia is and share the gospel with her because I would love to see Olivia get saved well, as we're sitting there talking and I'm waiting for my opportunity to share the gospel with her, it becomes evident to me that Olivia is not only already saved, she is a strong Christian. And so after about a half an hour, I finally said to her, I said, Olivia, how did you come to Christ? It's obvious you know the Lord and you've walked close with him. How did you get saved? I want to hear your story. She got red in the face. And she put her head down and she said, it was you guys. I'm like, what? She said, it was you and Miss Becky. I go, I don't understand. She said, during those times when I would go over to your house because of the mess of my family, I would watch you and her. And I'd watch your family. And I watched Rebecca's parents. And I knew you were Christians. And God used you guys to put something in my heart. And I came to Christ from watching you guys in your home. All I could say was, I had no idea. I had no idea. I got points and I didn't even try for it. <laughs> you have no idea what God wants to do 
Don't try to figure it out. Don't try to think, I'm going to be a great husband because my wife will finally, or I'm going to be a great wife because then my husband will. No, don't try to put God in a box. You just serve in the submission role that he's called you to. You love sacrificially as he's telling you, and you learn how to do this together, and God will be glorified in ways that one day when we stand before him, you'll be rewarded for, and you had no idea. Let me pray for you. And then we're going to give you your wrap-up instructions so you can go do your work together. Father, thank you again for this chance to come and allow you to speak to us through your word. I thank you for the privilege I've been given. But Lord, at the same time, I also thank you for a godly, godly wife that has made it so that I'm standing here the whole time just worshiping you and saying, Lord, thank you for the fact that I'm actually living out and getting to experience with my wife the way you've worked through her over the years to submit and to sacrificially love me. Lord, I just can't help but just publicly say thank you for what you've done in Becky's life and what a blessing it's been to stand here thanking you for what's going on. Lord, I pray that I would be the kind of husband by your grace that she would be sitting there thanking you for what you've done through me. And Lord, I want that for everybody else that's here. So Lord, because you're a God that says, let's get going from here. Begin to knit us together even more for your glory and for your purposes. We'll reap the benefits and you'll get the praise. May the world see Jesus through our marriages. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I love you guys. Thanks so much.